Have you ever heard of a Star Ruby or a Rio Red grapefruit? I have. I, in fact, consume them pretty frequently. Well, then you are eating the product of radiation. Wow. Just like bananas? It's just, well, so bananas, right, are radioactive because of the potassium in them. The Star Ruby grapefruit was created by bombarding grapefruit with radiation until something cool happened. That's insane. Do you want to learn how to do it? Yes. Let's go. Welcome to Beginner's Guide to Plain God, where we teach you how to use or abuse science to shape the world. I'm your co-host, Danny Vellin. Once upon a time, I thought about becoming a molecular biologist, but I've decided that the cushy life of a management consultant is more my speed. And I'm Jim Valcourt. I'm a scientist in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry, and I have my PhD in systems biology, which is a long way of saying I'm not the useful kind of doctor. So what are we talking about today? Well, today we're talking about atomic gardens and how to use radiation to breed better crops. Before we get started, since it's our first episode, do we want to talk about why we gave our podcast such a controversial name that will make my grandma sad? I mean, did we just do it for clickbait or what? I mean, that was my reasoning as a management consultant, but you can tell me your reasoning as a science person. Well, for me, whenever humans use science to try to control the world around us, there's this natural tendency to fall back to uh, kind of the Jurassic Park argument, the, uh, the hand-waving that, that somehow this is bad because humans are, are playing God, having powers that they shouldn't have, or, or having this level of scientific hubris. And in some cases, that's fair, and in other cases, it's not. It doesn't really uh, reckon with some of the big benefits of, of using science in a, in a practical way things like vaccines and curing diseases and and iPhones. So I think on this podcast, at least my goal is to try to reckon with uh, both the good and the bad of all of these different technologies and sort of delve into how the science uh, is shaping our world. Yeah, definitely. You know, there are some fair questions, too, about where our Where is the line or is there a line that humans shouldn't cross when it comes to scientific advancements and techniques. And I think what we want to do in this podcast is explore some of that weird science that might be a little bit questionable and learn about, you know, what it is that folks were trying to do in these various scenarios and maybe think about whether this is playing God per se, or is it just cool science? Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk about grapefruits, and specifically how you can use radiation to make better ones. To do that, we're going to use something called an atomic garden. So the general idea for an atomic garden is we want to blast plants with radiation to see if we can make them evolve into something new and interesting. Casual. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it was, I mean... You have to remember, this started back in like the 1950s and the 1960s, back in the nuclear heyday when everyone was super gung-ho about anything radioactive. And if there was a single sort of person who was maybe most responsible for this particular idea taking off, it was probably this British woman named Muriel Howorth. And she got into atomic gardens uh, back in that nuclear heyday. And she was hooked when she first saw that she could create these peanuts 
that she called giant peanuts. So she was very fond of feeding her dinner guests these like giant peanuts. But if you actually go in and look at uh, the size of the peanuts that she was making, I've heard them described as almond size, which at least to me doesn't seem like the <laughs> biggest peanut. I don't know. It's like a. Is that even like a bigger than a, you mean like the nut itself, not like it's with like the a shell little bigger than a normal peanut. Okay, I, I don't was know. I was imagining like a peanut in its shell, the size of an almond, and I was like, that's smaller than a normal peanut. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think it's uh. Sans shell, almond-sized. So Muriel Howarth, she organizes this uh, atomic gardening society, and she has it distribute all of these irradiated seeds to members of the general public. But like, what what are the requirements for joining the atomic garden society? Funny you should ask. (laughs) Uh, It seems like you have to be, number one, crazy for radiation, (laughs) and two, like a little bit insane. So they to seem give to you, go hand in hand. They definitely do. <laughs> to give you a little sense of how crazy some of these folks were. Um, so first, Muriel Howarth uh, was famous for uh, a particular ballet that she staged to extol the power of the atom. Uh, so I'm going to read you a little quote from Time magazine describing this ballet. Quote, An ample electron in black lace wound her way around two matrons labeled proton and neutron, while an elderly ginger-haired Geiger counter clicked out their radioactive effect on a pretty girl named Agriculture. (laughs) At a climactic moment, a Mrs. Monica Davial raised across the stage in spirited representation of a rat eating radioactive cheese. Mrs. Davial, it was noted in the program, had recently returned from a trip to Tibet, and hence presumably had a nice understanding of these things. What does that even mean? You know, no, Tibet, famous for its rats and radioactive cheese, obviously. Obviously. They were, they were a little crazy for radiation. Um, another data point on the crazy for radiation spectrum. Uh... The Atomic Gardening Society had as one of its scientific advisory board members none other than L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. That explains a lot. It does. He was really into trying to prove that plants had feelings, literally. It's kind of easy to laugh at this from a modern perspective, but I have to say, you know, this was all happening at a time when... Uh, science and sort of organizing these big international organizations wasn't always an acceptable role for women to be playing socially. So True. I don't know. You know what? You you go, Muriel. I'll, I'll get behind it for sure. So Muriel's got these giant peanuts uh, and her tro- like trope of ladies doing her atomic ballet. Where did she go from giant peanuts? Well, the problem with the Atomic Gardening Society was that it never really amounted to much. So they, uh, they, they, they recognized, Muriel recognized, that you needed a big army of people to sort of screen through the different kinds of, of variants and plants that you make with your atomic garden, because most of them are actually not all that interesting. They're just dead or kind of sick. Uh, and so she needed a lot of people to look through it. Uh, But the furor for the Atomic Gardening Society kind of died out when it became clear that there weren't any, like, crazy breakthroughs on the horizon, at least in terms of the the citizen science aspect of this. Because in order to do atomic gardening 
at a really interesting sort of level, you have to do it at scale. So you have to have a lot of plants and a lot of uh, look at a lot of different uh, irradiated uh, specimens in order to try to find something interesting. Yeah, and it just kind of petered out after a while. Uh, and people sort of lost interest in atomic gardening, I think. All right, Jim. So you've told us about Muriel and her Society of Atomic Gardeners, but I want to know how can I get in on the action? That's what we're really here for, how to do it. That's right. Okay. Teach me I'm... how to play. God, Jim. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm, I'm into it. So our goal here, right, is to speed up the process of evolution, to sort of make it happen on the timescale of years rather than millennia. But in order to do that, we have to understand how evolution happens at all. The reason that evolution happens, right, is that every time an organism reproduces, it makes some mistakes when it's copying its DNA. Uh, most of the time, those mistakes are going to be detrimental. So if you just sort of accidentally delete a wall from your blueprint when you're making your house, most of the time that's not going to turn out well. It's not going to be a better house than it would have been otherwise. But every once in a while, the offspring are actually better suited to their environment than the parent in some way. So the plant makes a mistake, and somehow it becomes a little more tolerant to drought or a little more resistant to disease. And that's the kind of mistake that we're looking to make, right? So under normal conditions, the process of evolution is really slow. You can kind of understand why that might be, right? Because most mistakes are harmful. Living things generally try to do a good job of copying their DNA. Uh, yeah, but, seems like the right strategy. <laughs> I would think so. But we can actually mess with it. We can increase the number of mistakes with uh, the judicious application of some light ionizing radiation. Casual. And where would we get this ionizing radiation? Well, the most common source is uh, cobalt-60, which is highly radioactive. The radiation, specifically the gamma rays and beta particles that your cobalt-60 gives off as it decays, those little bits of radiation fly through the air and bash into the plant's DNA uh, and deliver a lot of energy that causes the DNA to break, uh, frequently to just snap in half or, or to otherwise rearrange itself. And so the plant notices, hey, uh, that's, that's not great. <laughs> ouch. Super ouch. Uh, and it tries to sort of frantically repair its DNA. And it makes some mistakes while it's stitching it back together. And so that can, that can sometimes produce some, some exciting new types of, of plants and new mutations. So where can we get this source of ionizing radiation? Uh, well, you can buy it online. Uh, oh, Cobalt 60. Amazon Prime Delivery, huh? You know, I... I <laughs> they I, got everything. <laughs> I couldn't find it on Amazon. I could find it for like $50 online. That's actually not as bad as I thought. There is another problem, though, which is, as far as I can tell, it is illegal for you as an individual to buy this. Uh, you need to have a license from the government in order to use it for an improved industrial application, probably because they're worried about, you know, terrorism and things like that. Yeah, so I am on every watch list now, unfortunately. Uh, guess we'll have to wait on buying that house, huh? Mm, yeah, could be, could be an issue. <laughs> Okay, so we've got our cobalt-60 source. Next up, get a big garden. Do you think we can handle that? Maybe if we move out of our small apartment in Manhattan. 
Yeah, okay, so that is a problem for now. <laughs> but let's let's imagine that we had a field that's like 300 feet across. I know that is a bigger space than you can possibly imagine right here, but let's, for the sake of argument. We set it up like a big dartboard, or f from above, kind of like a radioactivity symbol, um, appropriately. Uh, we're going to take our Cobalt-60 source and put it in the center of the, the concentric circles here. And then we're going to build a thick concrete bunker to house our radiation source in the center so that we can actually go in and garden without getting, uh, I think this is a technical term, mega cancer. Mm, yeah, it seems important to avoid that. Yeah. Um, so we're going to put the source in the bunker when we're gardening, and it'll be like on a retracting arm so we can then put it up when we want to expose our plants to radiation. Very Indiana Jones. I like it. It is. The other Indiana Jones part of this is uh, the weird, like, uh, signs, crop circles element of the whole thing from the air. Uh, and adding to that is the fact that we have to put a big berm around the outside of the field, maybe like 30 feet tall to protect our neighbors and, you know, not kill them before we actually meet them. Yeah, that sounds like that would be the right thing to do. And then the third step is just to garden, right? So we're going to plant plants. Some that might be the hardest That's, possible. I mean, based on my track record, you're good at keeping plants. I kill some. everything. Jury's out on, like, vegetables. Our green onions are looking a little sad, to be honest. Well, okay, then all the, the plants that you're worried about killing, you should plant them really close to the radiation source. So that when they die, you have an excuse. Because mm. that's what's going to happen to all of the plants that are really close. They get a huge dose of radiation, and most of them just don't survive. The stuff that's really far out actually doesn't get a lot of radiation, so it's pretty normal. Uh, it's just going to be your regular peanut sizes. Uh, but the stuff in the middle that's sort of at the medium distance from the, the radiation source, that's going to be the interesting stuff. So... It gets hit with just enough radiation to scramble its DNA a bit, but not so much that it dies. So it's going to make at least some potentially interesting plants. So the other problem is that the changes are sort of accelerated, but they're still random, right? So we're going to get a lot of sick and misshapen peanuts, and then maybe one or two big ones. So there's going to be a lot of work in terms of you have to go and pick out the plants that look interesting and propagate them further. And uh, so, do we have a sense of like how, like how long or how many peanuts we'd have to plant in order to get one of these interesting mutations, or is it really truly random and like it could take, you know, decades and hundreds of thousands of peanuts before we get something interesting? That's a really good question. It kind of depends on how difficult in some sense, the trait is to make, right? Hmm. So like larger peanuts, you can imagine that there's some sort of biological pathway that controls how big the peanut is. And so maybe if you just like mess that up a little, it'll tweak the size. And, you know, maybe it keeps growing for a little longer than it would have otherwise. But fundamentally, it's sort of the same thing. If you want to turn your peanut into a unicorn, you're going to have to wait a lot longer. You know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so the the short answer is it depends. <laughs> depends what you want to do. Depends what and you want to do. Whether or not you can tell, you know, whether or not you have a mutation may also sort of depend on what you're screening for. Because I'm just imagining, like, you know, it's possible that some of the easier lower hanging fruit, no pun intended, uh, <laughs> lower hanging are. Nuts. 
<laughs> well, I wasn't going to say it, but you did. Uh, is to, you know, create a new variety that's like more drought resistant or more like nitrogen toxicity resistant or whatever nuts don't tolerate in soil. But in order to know whether or not you've selected for it, or I should say, whether you've created that type of mutation in your peanut varieties, you'd have to do extensive testing on the ones that you've like mutated in that area. Yeah, that's exactly right. You need to be able to so the way that Muriel was trying to solve this was she sent out all of these uh, irradiated seeds to people across the country to try to sort of get them to uh, outsource the, the looking at all of these plants and the cataloging which ones were interesting and which ones weren't. If you had a really quick and easy way of determining whether a plant was interesting and you didn't have to you know, grow it all the way up, then yeah, that's going to speed up your process for sure. That's exactly right. Cool. So because you're not actually allowed to do this, it might kind of seem like this has not really, this is not going to have an impact on your life, right? Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm going to encounter too many atomic gardens in the city of New York or even in the suburbs. So where would I be seeing these sort of weird atomic fruits and vegetables in my Uh, life? I mean, I will grant you, you're not going to run into an, an atomic garden, but you will run into the offspring of atomic gardens. So we mentioned up at the top of the show that uh, you eat star ruby and these varieties of grapefruit that were actually developed at the Texas A&M Citrus Center, uh, which is apparently a real thing, I guess. Not you something a- I would have expected out of Texas A&M, but I'll take it. Anyway, scientists both at the Citrus Center and elsewhere used a radioactive source in order to breed the Star Ruby and Rio Red varieties uh, that you eat all the time, actually. So grapefruits, as recently as 50 years ago, used to be sort of yellow and bitter with kind of a thick skin. And breeders managed to find a variety of grapefruit that evolved naturally that was actually pink and sweet. Uh, unfortunately, that pink color tended to sort of fade uh, later on in the harvesting year. And so they were interested in finding a grapefruit uh, that was a little more durable and was able to keep that beautiful pink color over time. So uh, you can probably guess at this point what they did. Blast it with radiation. That's right. They blasted it with radiation until something (laughs) cool happened. And that cool thing in this case was these two grapefruit varieties that kept their beautiful pink color and sweetness for a long time. And so those Star Ruby and Rio Red varieties uh, are uh, radiation-induced, and they actually represent 75% of the grapefruit grown in Texas. So they uh, have radiation to thank for a lot of their grapefruit industry. All right, so now you've told me that one of the foods I eat every day is created because of this weird radiation. Are there other foods I eat regularly that I should be aware about? Well, I don't know if it's weird radiation, but yeah, there are other foods that you might be eating that uh, have been modified by radiation at some point in time. So one example, actually, is rice. So in the 1970s, a scientist named J. Neil Rutger and his team Uh, evolved with radiation a mutant strain of rice that had higher yields. And one of the principal ways that it did this was it had sort of a shorter, thicker stalk. And according to the New York Times, quote, its short size also meant it fell over less often. So, 
you know, that's uh, apparently a really good thing for Rice, and I think also why Daniel Radcliffe is such a successful actor. He's doesn't, doesn't fall, fall over. over. He's short. Yeah, that's. <laughs> that's the dumbest. <laughs> you gotta cut that out. Okay. Okay. So back to these rice scientists, though. They named their rice Calrose seventy six because they were scientists, and not marketers. Should have hired some management consultants. Should have hired some <laughs> management consultants. What would you have called the rice? Man, putting me on the spot there. <laughs> That's a weird name for rice. <laughs> the other interesting way that this has probably impacted your life is the International Atomic Energy Agency kind of uses atomic gardening and the whole general method of uh, using radiation to make better crops as sort of uh, a lever in its diplomacy. So the, the general deal there is, hey, uh, let us inspect your nuclear sites and we'll help you make better plants, uh, which wait, apparently wait. is... Uh, wait, 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 wait. Yeah. <laughs> Explain to me many things here. One, what is the International Atomic Agency and what do they do? And also, how does inspecting nuclear sites equal making better plants? Well, so the International Atomic Energy Agency is a part of the UN, and they are charged with uh, inspecting all of the nuclear facilities across the world to make sure they're not being used to produce nuclear weapons. And so this is kind of the the carrot to go along with all of the sanctions and, and other sticks that the agency has at its disposal. They'll say, if you let us in to inspect your nuclear sites, we will help use the power of radiation to help you make better plants. And mm. apparently that's something that uh, countries are at least a little bit interested in. <laughs> uh, and so they used this successfully, for example, in, in Ghana, where a virus was killing, and hold your breath here, cocoa trees. <gasps> I know. That's actually like 15% of the world's chocolate there. So that's just the stakes were high. Not okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but they were able to use radiation to to breed a, a strain of cocoa trees that were resistant to this virus and uh, basically saved the world, I think is fair to say. So, Jim, are all of these different mutated plants where we've used, you know, radiation to help improve, you know, their yield or help them adapt? Are these all examples of GMOs? Yeah, I mean, in some sense there, uh, you could think of them as kind of one of the original GMOs. So so GMO, right, stands for a genetically modified organism. Uh, and that's that's exactly what you're doing. You're using radiation to, to mix up the DNA and, and create new types of, of plants in this case. Um, modern uh, genetically modified organisms uh, can be made with different tools. So I think a lot of scientists would think of radiation is kind of a blunt instrument. Uh, it just makes these random changes to the DNA, whereas nowadays, if you know exactly what change you want to make, we have tools uh, sometimes called molecular scissors, like uh, something called CRISPR, which we might talk about in a later episode. But all of those technologies allow you to just make more precise uh, edits and to control actually what's going on uh, in the DNA. But at the end of the day, all of these are about uh, sort of changing an existing organism to, uh, to make it into uh, something different, something beneficial to humans. 
And so, yeah, I, I'd call them GMOs. So overall, this process of using radiation to, to make better plants is, uh, I think it's sort of a small part of the food that we eat today and the world that we live in, but it's not negligible. You know, there are specific real cases where it's helped to, you know, improve yield and, and adapt plants to our, our climate that we've been wrecking and reducing water usage and improving resistance to diseases and pests and things like that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's been a real impact on, on the food we eat, and, and a lot of people have no idea that it's even possible. Yeah, awesome. Well, I definitely think that in this instance of humanity potentially playing God, the ultimate result is one that benefited humanity and possibly plant life as well. Yeah, so let's give it a thumbs up or thumbs down. Is this playing God, and is it justified? Um, I don't think this really pushes the boundaries too much on playing God, but I definitely give it a thumbs up that it's justified. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is definitely a thumbs up for me. You're not going to be able to make killer peanuts this way. If anything, you'll just get almond sized peanuts and, uh, the benefits. Slightly disappoint all of your friends. <laughs> yeah. And I guess as, as long as the cobalt 60 is well controlled, I have no problem with this being used in, in controlled ways. So thumbs up from me. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on A Beginner's Guide to Plain God. I'm your co-host, Danny Vellin. And I'm Jim Velcourt. If you like the show, make sure to tell a friend and leave a review either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find us online at playinggodpod.com or follow us on Twitter at playinggodpod. Big thank you to Marcus Way for our intro and outro, and we'll see you next time. Okay, sorry, so, the so step going. Hmm? I said, sorry, the litter box is, is going. Oh, should we hold for hold for litter box? <laughs> yeah, it's almost done. Cool. Trigger is staring at it intently. He's really interested in it. I don't know why. It's the same. <laughs> I don't think finished. he's figured out where the poop goes. Yeah, because he can't smell it because it's so right? good. Because it's so good. Hi, baby. Lori has such a good there? sense of smell that... He's like, it's under there somewhere. I know it, but I can't see it. Where's my poops? Where's my poop? I'm Poop Man. <laughs> I'm the Poop Man. He looks kind of like Poop Man. Is that our cold open? <laughs> I hope not.